All right, well, good morning and happy Father's Day again. Uh, We are now in our fourth week in the book of Hebrews in our series we've titled True and Better, referring to Jesus Christ, who is true to everything in the Old Testament that led up to him and also better than everything that had come before. So in our first week, uh, Pastor Jeremy preached on the supremacy of Christ as our great prophet, priest, and king. And then in our second week, we saw that Christ is better than the angels. And then last week, we looked at how Christ is the true and better Moses. Like Moses, he is a great prophet who leads his people to salvation and rest. But the salvation and rest that Jesus offers is much greater and better than that of Moses. And so today, we're going to continue. Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, and then we'll go through verse 10 of chapter 5. So that's Hebrews 4, 14 uh, through 5, verse 10. And so in this passage, the author of Hebrews, whoever he or she might have been, begins to unpack what it means for Christ to be our true and better high priest. Um, And this theme of priesthood is going to be fleshed out much more in coming weeks. So we can think of this as a a preview, so to speak, of Christ as priest. So right before we read this, um, one thing I want you to keep your eyes open for is both similarities and differences in the passage between Christ and the priests that came before. So our series is true and better, right, which kind of gets at both ideas. Christ is true, he is similar, he is consistent with everything that has to do with the priesthood that's led up, but he's also different, he's unique, he's better, and we'll see elements of both of these in the passage. So I'm going to read Hebrews 4, uh, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession." For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see Jesus is a true priest. Uh, Just to pick a couple of things, the passage says he's a great high priest. He's able to sympathize. He was tempted in every respect. He represents humans or he takes his stand 
um, on behalf of humans in regard to God. He is beset with weakness. He was called by God. He learned obedience through suffering. But at the same time, we also see that he is clearly better than these previous priests. We see that he passed not through an earthly tabernacle or temple, but through the heavens. Uh, we see that he was tempted yet without sin. We see that he's appointed not merely as a priest, but as a son. We see that he doesn't belong to the Levitical order, but to the order of Melchizedek. And um, if you're curious about that, I'm going to save all the fun of Melchizedek for Pastor Jeremy when he gets back. But if you want a little extracurricular activity for the week, um, you can read all of the stories about Melchizedek in the Old Testament in the uh, back half of Genesis 14. So if you want to read Genesis 14, the last few verses, that's more or less all we know about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And we read that Jesus is made perfect. He is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In short, we might say that Jesus is a suitable high priest, a sympathizing high priest, and a saving high priest. So a suitable high priest, a sympathizing high priest, and a saving high priest. And so we'll look at those one at a time. So first, he's a suitable high priest. The author throughout this passage talks about the activities of the priests of Israel, and in particular, the high priest. So we see that they were appointed by God, specifically to stand on behalf of God's people, to represent God's people to God. And the way that they did that is they offered gifts and sacrifices for sin. And for most of us, if, if you know, somebody were to say, oh, what comes to your mind when you think of a biblical priest? It's probably something to do with sacrifices, right? Maybe, you know, the blood of the, the animal being spilled or sprinkled. Maybe it's the, the fire and the smoke rising up to heaven or something like that. The book of Hebrews in future chapters is going to go much more in depth into the whole sacrificial system, what it was there for, how we understand that today, why we don't do that anymore. But for our passage, I think it's, it's worth noting just a few things. First, the sacrificial system was God's idea. Um, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, that was just the Israelites were doing their best to try to understand God based on the common practices of the time. But biblically speaking, you know, you can read the whole foundation of the sacrificial system in the Pentateuch, in the, the books of Moses. And so this was not a bad thing. This was God's idea in the first place. And it involved priests, priests who were all from the tribe of Levi. These were the Levites, the Levitical priests, who were uh, appointed by God to represent the people to him. And the primary purpose of this system was to make atonement for sin. And atonement is just a fancy-dancy $5 word that literally mean, it's just the word at and the word one scrunched together. So literally it's at one meant, meaning to take two parties that are separate and to bring them together. And so that's the idea. The Israelites and God are separate because of the sin of the Israelites, and when atonement is made, they are brought together. So when the author of Hebrews identifies Jesus as the great high priest, this is the job description that his Hebrew audience would have in mind right? Jesus was appointed by God to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people so that they might be with God, so that they might have access into God's presence. This is what it means at the end of chapter 4 when he says the throne of grace. Likely what he's thinking of is in the Old Testament when the priest would go into God's presence and would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, that place was called the mercy seat. 
And so the mercy seat and the throne of grace is the same idea, where God is. But we see that Jesus is not merely the latest in a long line of priests. He is the great high priest. He is the priest of priests, we might say. In fact, in future chapters, we'll see that Jesus isn't even eligible to be the latest in the line of high priests because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's not a Levitical priest. He's a Melchizedekan priest. But that's another sermon for another day. Jesus is not merely chosen by God. He's the Son of God. Jesus doesn't just pass through the tabernacle or the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement. He actually passes through the heavens, the heavenly places. And so the idea there is when the high priest on the the Day of Atonement, the one day a year in the Old Testament when that person could actually go into the Holy of Holies, go into where God was, as the high priest would go through there, it was kind of a symbolic reenactment of undoing the banishment from Eden. Um, So there are a couple of very interesting details. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, when they lose access to God's presence, they're kicked out, and Scripture tells us they're kicked out eastward. Well, the high priest, when he would go into the presence of God, he would start eastward and would come back westward on purpose. Adam and Eve were barred from going back because there was a cherubim. There was an angelic being with a flaming sword. Well, if you were the high priest, as you were coming back from the east into the tabernacle, as you were going through the various veils and looking at the carvings and the statues in the tabernacle, what would you find? Cherubim woven into the veils and cherubim carved with their wings outstretched in the Holy of Holies. Jesus doesn't just go through the model of where God lives. Jesus actually goes through the heavens to where God lives. And perhaps most importantly, the high priest in the Old Testament couldn't go in and make sacrifice for atonement for the people until he had first made sacrifice for his own sin. Jesus is without sin. Jesus does not have to make sacrifice for his own sin. Verse 15 of chapter 4 tells us, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And before we unpack that more, I want to take a moment to just um, talk about what does it mean that Jesus has been tempted in every respect? Um, Because this this is, can be easily misunderstood. So does this mean that Jesus experienced every single specific temptation to every single specific sin that you and I ever could? Well, no, because Jesus was a Jewish man growing up in poverty in the first century in a different part of the world, right? So the, the daily temptations that he would face are not going to be exactly the same as those that you or I might face in 21st century Cypress Rose Hill, Right? Um, Think of any number of temptations that come with technology or other things that Jesus just wouldn't have experienced, and vice versa. There were things that he had to deal with that we don't, right? He couldn't just go to HEB when he was hungry, right? Or he couldn't just get in his car and drive when his air conditioning was out. However, we can rest assured that Jesus lived a full life in order to face the full range of temptations that are common to humanity, right? I'm not going to face the exact same set of temptations as anybody else in this room and vice versa, but we can also say that we all face temptations that are common to humanity, right? And so Jesus can do that too. 
Does this mean that Jesus' temptations looked exactly the same as ours? Well, no, because there's a very important difference there. Um, Jesus faced temptation from the outside, right, which is not sinful. If somebody comes up to us and says, hey, let's go rob the bank, make some money, we haven't sinned, right? That's a temptation coming from the outside. The tempter has sinned, but we haven't. However, uh, and that may be kind of a silly example, but if, if a temptation comes from the outside, oftentimes, I'll just use myself, my response is not, oh, I would never do that. You know, that disgusts me. I only want to obey God in everything. A lot of times there's a part of me inside that says, oh, that would be a really good idea. If only I could get away with that. Or, ooh, okay, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I really wish I could. That comes from the fallen nature. That comes from the sinful desires we have that the New Testament calls the flesh. Well, Jesus doesn't have a fallen nature, right? Jesus doesn't have that inward traitor, so to speak, that we do. So if I'd been in the wilderness and Satan comes and says, hey, turn these stones into bread, there'd probably be some bitterness at the fact that I hadn't eaten for 40 days at God that arose within me that I'd have to deal with. Jesus didn't have that. Well, that might lead to the question, well then, can Jesus really understand what it's like for us to be tempted if he didn't have that fallen nature? And the answer there is absolutely, because even though Jesus' temptations came from the outside, he faced far more outside pressure than you and I ever will, right? I mean, for one, none of us have ever been one-on-one out in the wilderness with Satan himself. Um, But think of it this way, and I'm going to use a quote from the late Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod, who writes, We must be careful not to misconstrue the effect of Jesus' sinless integrity at this point. I feel like I need to apologize for not having a Scottish accent to read this in. Far from meaning a shorter, painless struggle with temptation, it involved Jesus in protracted resistance, precisely because he did not yield easily and was not like us an easy prey the devil had to deploy all his wiles and use all his resources. The fact that he was invincible meant that he endured the full force of temptation's ferocity until hell slunk away, defeated and exhausted. Against us, a little temptation suffices. Against him, Satan found himself forced to push himself to his limits. And so Jesus faced down everything that Satan threw at him, from his infancy to the first moment when Jesus realized that his mission was to suffer and die, to the one-on-one bout in the wilderness, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross itself. Jesus knows what it's like to face temptation because he faced far more than any of us ever will without ever giving in. And so he's not only a suitable high priest, but he's also a sympathizing high priest, right? A lot of times when um, I've I've found that I I can very easily be guilty of this as a father, as a teacher, when one of my children or one of my students comes and asks for help solving a problem or doing an assignment, and it's something that I'm naturally pretty good at or that I've already had to work at, it's really easy for me not to respond with compassion, like, oh, I know what it's like, I remember that, but with scorn, right? Why can't you do that? I've already done that. I I managed. I managed to make my bed every day, or I managed to do this or that. How many times do we respond not with sympathy when people come to us for help, but with some form of contempt, right? Jesus is not like that. The passage tells us that, at least in theory, 
the previous high priests were able to sympathize with the weaknesses of the people because they had the same weaknesses. Maybe we think of the first high priest, Aaron, right? Aaron kind of starts off his tenure with that whole golden calf incident, right? He, he literally makes an idol and leads all of the people at the foot of Mount Sinai to worship it while his little brother is up on the mountain getting the law from God, right? And then it gets better because when Moses comes back and asks Aaron what happened, Aaron has the gall to say, well, people brought me the gold and I just threw it in the fire and poof, out came the calf. And um, because his little brother is the one writing scripture, that whole quote gets preserved for the rest of us to read for all eternity, right? Um, But all jokes aside, you think Aaron remembered that as people were bringing sacrifices to him for the rest of his life, right? I know what it's like to struggle with idolatry. I know what it's like to rebel against God. I know what it's like to be caught red-handed. I know what it's like to fail. And in his best moments, I'm sure that that added to Aaron's sympathy, right? But he also doubtless had moments where, come on, guys, why can't you just get this together? How many times do we respond not with sympathy to people who have similar struggles, but with anger, right? How many times, I mean, isn't it true that so many of our pet peeves tend to be the things we see in others that we most look down on in ourselves? And instead of sympathy, we get angry. If anybody ever had the right to respond that way, it's Jesus. But he doesn't because Jesus is not like this. Jesus knows what it is like to experience human weakness. Jesus knows what it is like to live in poverty. He knows what it's like to have to learn things. He knows what it's like to have to submit to his parents, even in times when his parents don't understand his mission as well as he does. He knows what it's like to experience hunger and thirst. He knows what it's like to be weary and exasperated. He knows what it's like to be slandered, to have his reputation destroyed. He knows what it's like to be threatened and betrayed. He knows what it's like to be attacked by Satan in his weakest moments. He knows what it's like to be offered power or comfort or pleasure, even when these things are not wrong in and of themselves, but in the moment are not what God has called us to do. He knows what it is like to cry out strongly for tears of salvation. He knows what it is like to suffer. Chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience, right? When I think of how I learned obedience, there's a lot of, a lot of sin, a lot of disobedience, a lot of discipline uh, that went into that. Does this mean that Jesus started out with disobedience and he had to have it disciplined out of him and to repent? No. It means that Jesus developed his obedience by being put to more and more challenging tests as he grew. Kind of like the way I expect to see obedience from Wesley, right, who's about to turn five, is very different from the level of obedience I expect from Owen, who's ten, right? Very different from the level of obedience I would expect for a teenager, right? Um, Jesus couldn't just beam down to earth with the potential to live a sinless life. He had to actually live the sinless life. Um, I'll, I'll throw a and football under the bus for a moment. Um, a couple years ago, uh, A&M came down with uh, 
not only the top-rated recruiting class of the year, but by some measures, the highest-rated on paper recruiting class ever recorded, right? They didn't cancel the season and just give us the national championship, right? Because it doesn't matter. We didn't pass the test, right? Um, when our current coach was hired, and this is one of the most embarrassing things I think my alma mater has ever done, they gave him this national championship trophy with the year blank, right? We, we're going to win one. We're just going to, we just don't have the year yet. It's embarrassing and means nothing because it doesn't matter how much potential may or may not be there. You have to actually pass the test, right? It wouldn't have been enough for Jesus to just come down to earth with the potential to live a sinless life. He had to actually live the sinless life, and he did. And he didn't do it the way that I stop at stop signs, which is so that I can feel justified in getting angry at everybody I see who doesn't. He did it so that he could save those of us who can't. He did it, and he sympathizes. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he's not just a suitable high priest. He's not just a sympathetic high priest. He's also a saving high priest. So we've mentioned before that the main task of the high priest in the Old Testament was to symbolically go into God's presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. In many ways, this is not only the high point of Israel's worship for the year, but it was also the low point, right? Because it never worked. Not once did a high priest emerge from God's presence and say, eternal salvation is now available. Not once did a high priest emerge from God's presence and say, the veil is now torn, you can all go in. The high priest would come out, and the next year they'd have to go right back in. Until Jesus tore the veil. In his excellent commentary on Leviticus, uh, Dr. Michael Morales points out that the Greek word Christos, which is where we get our word Christ, which is just the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Messiah, is only used in the first five books of the Old Testament to refer to the high priest, the Christ. Last week, Pastor Jeremy preached on the warning uh, from the story of the wilderness generation, right, who the generation that was rescued from Egypt, that got the law, that had the first high priest, Aaron, right, that was led by Moses, and that we remember for their stubborn, rebellious hearts, hearts that were so stubborn that on multiple occasions, God actually announced his intention to bring judgment by wiping them out. We might think of the golden calf. We might think of, you know, their flat-out refusal to go into the land when they got there because the people there were giants or any other incident. But each time, God was faithful to raise up a high priest to stand in the gap and to make atonement for their sin. On one occasion, uh, this is the story of Korah's rebellion from Numbers 16, uh, there's actually a group of Levites who rejected Moses and Aaron and said, what right do you have to be the, the prophet and the priest? Well, God told us. But they were so defiant and stubborn that in the story, God actually ends up opening the earth to swallow them whole, right? Because God's righteous wrath is a real thing. And then the very next day, the whole congregation grumbles and blames Moses and Aaron for the death of these defiant, rebellious people, right? And you think, what on earth are the Israelites thinking? They're just like us. And God shows up and announces, he tells Moses and Aaron, get out of the way, I'm going to consume the people. 
And Moses, I'm going to pick up the reading. Moses says to Aaron, take your censer, take the stick with the incense on the end, put fire on it from the altar, put incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. So Aaron, the first high priest, took it, as Moses said, ran into the midst of the assembly. Behold, the plague had already begun moving among the people. And Aaron put on the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. And I love the way Scripture puts it in that last verse, verse 48. Aaron took his stand between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. That is the essence of the work of the high priest. Why did Moses know what to do? Why did he send Aaron to the altar? Because he knew that if atonement was made, they would find mercy and receive grace in their time of need. Perhaps this is the story that the author of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote that we should approach the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace. Maybe he had in mind God's self-description of himself that is repeated multiple times in the Old Testament, that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, or any other instances of God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, we have a great high priest who stands between the dead and the living and is the source of eternal salvation. And just as Aaron, by making atonement, stopped the temporal plague, Christ stops the righteous wrath of God and offers salvation to all of those who are covered by his blood. He doesn't just approach the mercy seat once a year to make a partial symbolic covering that will last for 365 days. He goes to where God is and he makes a full and complete salvation to all who obey him. So we can confidently run to him in our time of need. If we are weighed down by guilt, Satan tempts us to despair. Upward we can look and see him there who made an end to all of our sin. And regardless of what it is that may weigh us down, Jesus knows what it's like. He sympathizes and Jesus is capable of saving. So we can run to him because he is our great high priest. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you confidently, though you are a righteous and a holy God, which we confess, Lord, though we are guilty and are not worthy to stand before you, because in your mercy and grace, you have provided Jesus Christ to be not only among us, but to be one of us, to earn the way into your presence and then to offer that freely to all who come. Lord, we pray that in our time of need, we would come. We pray that nothing would hold us back from running to your throne of grace, confident that the blood of Christ still works and that you are delighted to hear from us and that we will receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We pray this in the name of our great high priest. Amen.